Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the virtual inquiry into the Red Hill Parkway starts again tomorrow. John Best from the Bay Observer joins us to talk about that. Students going into grade 9 will no longer have to decide whether to take applied or academic courses. The province is planning to get rid of streaming in high schools. We'll give you the details. And the Prime Minister is being investigated again by the Federal Commissioner for Ethics. That's all has to do with the We Charity scenario from last week. We'll tell you what's going on and how it's going to work out in just a couple of seconds when we get going here. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. This week, the uh, Red Hill Inquiry will continue uh, in just a couple of days. Uh, the virtual inquiry into the Red Hill Valley Parkway. John Best has been following this story uh, since day one, actually. John, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on what's happening. John, welcome to the program. Good to have you back again. Yeah, good to be together with you, Bill. Glad yeah, you're good Good to back be back. Let's the saddle. So what have I missed? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is, uh, this has is been it? a... I, I know, but I mean... With with all the stuff that's gone on with COVID nineteen and the closures and the reopenings and and talk of a, a second wave and all this sort of stuff, uh, this very important uh, inquiry kind of got shoved to the background, but uh, not in the eyes of Justice uh, Herman Wilton Siegel, obviously. But uh, they're continuing. I, I, are they making progress in your opinion? Well, it sounds like uh, they're not. Um, uh, and you know, we have to understand that the COVID is has made. Uh, you know, the evidence gathering a little more difficult. And that was acknowledged last week in a statement from uh, the judge. Um, they've spent almost half the $7, billion, $7 million. See how easily we slip between million and billion these <laughs> yeah. days? Um, that's another phenomenon, I guess, of, of the COVID. No, but they've spent over $3 million of the $7 million, And it sounds like... Uh, I'm, I'm sure there's, they've done purposeful work, but uh, they're talking about still trying to get their hands on documents. That one I wonder about a little bit. I, I understand with social distancing and whatnot that uh, interviewing witnesses face-to-face uh, is, a, is an issue, but you would think that documents could still be produced. So it, I, I read that, and it, it just kind of, you know, a little little red light went on and said, I wonder just exactly what is going on, because, uh, you know, we've, we've certainly learned how to um, interview people through, um, uh, you know, um, there's so many technological devices, Zoom and, and many others, that you, you, you'd wonder if they weren't a little further down the road. Well, it, it boggled my imagination, too, to try to figure out just what the delay might be here, and and because uh, I saw the same quote from the judge, and I just figured, in this day and age, uh, it's not as if somebody has to go into the basement at City Hall and pile through boxes to look for this stuff. It's a click of a button to, to send something off to somebody and say, here's the stuff that we've been working on for the last seven or eight years. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that uh, there's there's good reason. We have to approach this thing in a, in a spirit of uh, good faith and don't want to start speculating, but... I, I would have thought that uh, if if it's evidence gathering, and of course that's only the first part of uh, really the first part of the first half of this exercise. Uh, after that, at some point, there's going to have to be testimony. So uh, we'll we'll see, Bill. But it um, I was a little disappointed to see that uh, you know they were talking about stuff like documents. I mean, at the very minimum, you'd think that would be available. 
Where's this going? And maybe you could just remind our listeners, because it's been so long since we've even talked about this right now. And I mean, we know the history, of course, about the uh, the terrible fatalities and a number of accidents that occurred. Uh, the city, for all intents and purposes, pretty much said, don't look at us. It's not our fault. Uh, but uh, are, are they going to try at some point, John, to, to try to determine whether or not there is culpability here? Well, that's certainly the mandate. Uh, you know, one of the one of the key mandates of this inquiry is to find out why the report, uh, the initial uh, report, was the trade winds report, the one that um, identified the friction problem and uh, recommended further study. Uh, they they want to know why that report was uh, not released to the public uh, or council. So uh, yeah, it's um, and and it's also you know there's there also will be a major technical piece where they'll talk about what do we do you know to avoid this well they've already done it they paved the entire uh, expressway and i'm sure that when they when they repaved it they undoubtedly um, used materials that that uh, had a higher uh, friction quality than, than what had been done before but I mean, if it, if it's going to do what the mandate suggested it do, there will definitely be some individuals, I would think, uh, identified. Well, because there's some rather obvious uh, contradictions, I guess, shall we say. And, and, and there was a, a section on YouTube a couple of years ago, I guess, of one of the staff members uh, that was being questioned. I believe it was by Councilor Marula at the time. Uh, and the staff members quite simply said, look, at the, you know, this, this is top-of-the-line stuff. There's nothing wrong here. And you may remember, John, when they opened the Red Hill some years ago, they bragged about the fact that this is brand-new stuff. They, only a few places in the world are using this kind of asphalt or whatever they called it at that time. And uh, and this is going to really change it. Well, it, it, that's, now we know why not too many other people were using it. But they de- never really got around to saying, yeah, maybe we goofed up on this. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I guess what a lot of people have been asking for is validation to say, why did you do it this way? And why did you constantly, time and time again, uh, refuse to believe that there's any culpability or there's anything wrong with A, the design, and B, the materials that were used? Because that, that seems to be the, the, the crux of what's going on here. Well, and, and in fairness, that may be where the uh, document production is falling down, uh, because it really you'd have to go back to the original contractors, uh, for, well, you'd have to go further back to, to uh, whoever designed the, the highway. And uh, it was a complex project because it was, um, it was going through, uh, you know, kind of a wetland situation. It was, uh, you know, it, it was a unique uh, project. Uh, probably the only thing close to what was done here would have been the Don Valley Parkway, and that was designed and built back in the in the 50s so you know it's not like there was a whole bunch of templates on on how to design and build this thing and 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 the other issue uh was that there was uh there was you you remember how controversial the road was before it was Mm -hmm. built and and one of the key considerations in design was to uh, you know sort of maintain the natural character of the valley as much as possible so does that mean there were more curves on the road um, going through, you know, especially the, the Red Hill portion as opposed to the link? Um, you know, was there more bends in the road and, and, and those kind of things uh, built into the project in order to satisfy, uh, you know, there were, there were definitely some, some natural concerns there about, you know, trying to make the, the, the valley still usable for people that wanted to hike and, uh, uh, the reason they put the the ramp 
the bridge at the top of the uh, Red Hill was to allow animals to move back and forth. There was big concern about that. So it, it's going to be interesting uh, to sort of dig into some of that stuff. It's, it's ancient history now, but I think you have to put yourself back in the time. Uh, this road almost got not built, as, as you'll recall, and uh, I think they bent over backwards to, to try to accommodate people that were concerned about the natural uh, character of the valley, and, and I'm sure that got factored into the design. How far back are they allowed to go on this inquiry? Because you've just touched on uh, some very, very germane points to this thing that, that may or may not actually even come up in this discussion. One of them is the, the design of the road itself. In the, the early days, as you'll recall, John, I think you were still at CHCH back in those days when they started talking about this, the design was essentially, it wasn't necessarily a straight line, but nowhere near the serpentine sort of uh, facts that, that we see now. I mean, they, they had to change this a number of different times. Uh, and there's some people that kind of point to that particular design change and say, well, that's 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 where the problem started. And and I notice that every time I get onto the darn road because, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of the entrance ramps are, are actually on curves on the road, and it's very, very difficult to see oncoming traffic when you're trying to do that sort of thing. You're trying to negotiate the turn and the bend on the ramp and then, of course, see where, where the other traffic is coming from. Uh, but that's just my opinion, but I think it's shared by an awful lot of other people. I mean, if they want to go right back to day one here, uh, there's a lot of ground to cover. Well, uh, and I think they have to go back to day one, Bill. Uh, I, in fact, day minus uh, whatever, because uh, I, I think uh, some of the issues uh, that we're dealing with are, are very much uh, a result of uh, the design and, and construction of the road. And, and so we're going back a long way. you got to remember, yes, the road has only been open, I don't know how many years. I guess it's uh, about 11 years now, the, the lower portion, but... The design part of it was going on for a decade prior to that, and and I don't know how you can get to the bottom of things unless you go right back to the beginning uh, of of at least uh, don't have to go back to the 50 years when they first started talking about building the highway. We certainly got to go back to the current design and construction and um, and see what people were. Uh, you know, what were the assumptions they were working on then? What were the engineering standards? Um, it's going to get uh, pretty complicated, but I, I don't think there's any question that if this uh, commission is going to do its job, it's it's got to it's got to do a lot of history. We we need to also put this in context as well, because there is a legal element to this, uh, not just the possibility of culpability, but we know that there are lawsuits that are, are pending now. And I'm sure, I'm sure rather that they're doing their investigations into that as well. But I would think that whatever this inquiry d comes up with, uh, with their final report, whenever that's going to be, John, uh, it's going to be a major influence on, on these other potential lawsuits. I mean, this, this is going to go on for quite a long time, I would think. Well, uh, yes. And, you know, there's, there's going to be a precedent. There, there's a potential for a precedent here, Bill, because, you know, we've never had a situation, uh, or at least I can't think of very many situations where, <clears throat> lawsuits uh, were were launched essentially about a, a design issue with a road. Uh, normally, in you know, in in the kind of lawsuits that arise out of traffic accidents, we blame people. We uh, you know, it's careless driving or it's drunk driving or it's something. But uh, this is quite an unusual thing, and there's there's a real precedent here. I mean, the reason we have these Jersey barriers, <clears throat> excuse me, all over the place now. Uh, arose out of a, a significant lawsuit down in the United States um, around guardrails. 
and uh, you know millions and millions were paid out, and all of a sudden, uh, uh, you know, Jersey barriers suddenly became the norm in in every road work in in North America and elsewhere. So you know, the one of the results that we may get is uh, is one of these wide ranging uh, engineering changes that that will carry beyond Hamilton. Well, just about every road in North America, except the link, which still I find somewhat troubling, but uh, that's a, another element that the city's going to have to deal with. But uh, the remedial costs, once this is all said and done, you just mentioned the fact that even though council said there's nothing the matter with the, the design of the road, there's nothing the matter with the composition of the asphalt they used, they, they did repave it uh, and did the whole thing over again. And uh, you got to wonder what, what other costs are going to be down the road, excuse the bad uh, pun there. Uh, once this uh, inquiry is finished about the sorts of things that may have to be done. I, I don't know how prescriptive uh, Justice uh, Siegel is going to be in a situation like this. Well, he's um, he's got enough budget that he can bring in all the expertise he needs. And, uh, I, I, you know, when you, you read the mandate, it's pretty clear. They, they want to they know with, uh, with pinpoint accuracy how did we get here, uh, who did what, and when. And uh, and then the second part of the of the study is uh, or the inquiry is going to be, um, you know, what are the recommendations from a technical standpoint going forward? So it's uh, it's a comprehensive review. Um, I'm not sure that council necessarily knew what they were getting into or the full ramifications of it, but obviously they would have had legal advice before they voted to to do the inquiry. There were. You know, there there were inquiry models that that wouldn't have been as extensive as a judicial inquiry. Uh, I'm not re- I'm not suggesting that they shouldn't have gone to this route, but they they went for the Cadillac, and um, and it's got a life of its own now, and uh, it's going to be interesting because we haven't even got anywhere near the the, the public. Uh, uh, testimony phase and and that's going to be fascinating not only members of the of the public who have lost loved ones they're going to have some some pretty heart-wrenching stories to tell but then i think when we get into some of the engineering and construction people get them on the stand i think that's going to be uh very much uh <laughs> i think we'll be all following every word of that and I know I've heard some people on council complaining about the cost of this thing too, and some indicating that uh, that well, we they kind of got pushed into it. They, they've only got themselves to blame. One of the the underlying currents, and I think one of the subplots here that a lot of people are concerned about was the lack of transparency. That there are people on council that knew about this and didn't talk to the public about this. Not unlike sewage gate and a couple of other things right now. So uh, we may be paying a lot more than we probably could have or should have for this inquiry, but it's only because of I think the, a general feeling among the public right now that look at uh you guys have got to be up front with us and if you're not we're going to have to find out you know exactly what the problem is and how much more stuff are you keeping from us now well there are professional reputations at stake there you know and and um uh there are people that that were involved in the project that are no longer here so they're no longer under the control of this council um so uh, i i think um you're you're going to see some people um you know looking after their reputation and uh, that may lead and we're not sure where that's going to lead but um, you know I, I think there's going to you're going to hear some professional people that uh, are not going to take the, the fall if they don't think they're they're responsible I, I think we will find out why why the report was uh, was not released I as I've told you before from my perspective I read the report and I have to tell you 
13 pages uh, looks like, to be honest, it looks kind of Mickey Mouse, uh, you know, even the format of the thing. It doesn't look like one of these Acon or, you know, one of these big reports that we normally see. It, um, and, and, and the language was very muted when it came to, it certainly did say what it said, but, you know, you had to go through it pretty carefully. There was, there was no headlines, no bold, no exclamation marks. Um, in in the way it was worded, so uh, it's you know we probably have to go back and talk to the person that that actually produced that report. That's going to be very interesting. It sure is. Well, they get back at it again tomorrow. We'll see how it goes. John, as always, thanks so much. Great talking with you again today. My pleasure, Bill. Welcome back. Thank you so much, John Best from the uh, Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Things are going to be changing, and uh, there are going to be some changes to curricula. Uh, when we get back into uh, to the education th- uh, mode once again. Ontario is now looking into getting rid of streaming that takes place in grade 9. Now, uh, that's when students get to choose whether they want to go into remedial, applied, or academic math, for instance. Uh, there have been some concerns about this right from day one with this program, and it looks as if the Ministry of Education is going to reassess what's happening. I want to bring uh, Annie Kidder into the conversation. Annie, of course, is the Executive Director of People for Education. Annie, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good to have you with us again today. Good morning, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about this this whole idea of streaming. And uh, and again, I, I, the 10-second explanation of this, I guess, that I just gave, basically, I think, was uh, to, to try to indicate that, look, at, there are some students who have trouble with certain parts of the curriculum, math, for instance, uh, that maybe there should be different levels for them. Was, was that such a smart idea in hindsight? Well, and and really, initially, that, that wasn't the idea. The idea was all kids all learn differently, not, you know, struggle or not struggle, and that that the curriculum should be just as challenging, but that in the applied curriculum it would be for kids who, who learned in a more hands-on way, in a more actually applied way. So taking a real-life problem, solving it. And the curriculum is, it's math, English, French, all of the compulsory curriculum could be taken in applied or in academic. And the original idea was that kids would kind of, you know, mix and match. They'd take one applied course and the rest in academic or vice versa. But what actually happened is that if a kid took applied math in grade nine, they they were most likely to take all their courses in applied. And that's what streaming is then, because you're actually in a stream with all other kids in the same stream and you're divided off from uh, the kids in the other stream. That's what that is what happened. And, you know, there were many worrying parts to it. But one of them was that that and it's not just kids making these choices, it's teachers, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. suggesting them that that happens when kids are still in elementary school. So they're 13 years old. Um, They're being it's being suggested that they go into the applied stream. And the reality is then that many doors are closed then that they are you it's very hard to get back into the academic stream so it means it would be very very hard to sort of switch your path over and end up in a stream that's going to send you to university not that everybody should go to university and the reality was that that the kids in applied weren't even going to college they were more likely to drop out in fact they were less likely to do well so even for the kids who went, I want to take applied because it's easier, ironically, they were more likely to fail. And, I, and you know, the biggest problem in all of this was realizing who was in applied, that they were more likely to be black students, indigenous students, students from low-income families. And that was definitely not, uh, you know, the original purpose of, of having these choices in courses. And But that's been the reality. And that's why it it needed to end. It's 
taken a long time, but it seems as if it's finally going to. Let's, let's talk a little bit about how those decisions were made. And as you mentioned, I mean, you know, we're talking about a child who's still in elementary school and they have to, to make these determinations. So, I mean, let's face it, it's not them, it's the parents that, uh, that are doing this. But even the parents that had to make that decision, Annie, did they have that for that full breadth of knowledge about what the implications would be that, that there could be, uh, you know, if you choose, for instance, as you said, applied or in some cases even remedial, uh, that you're closing doors. Did, did they, were they aware of that and did they understand the implications? No, I don't think so. I don't think it was made very clear to anybody, even though even the EQAO, which does the testing, yeah. uh, was flagging this as a really big problem that they felt that no matter how you did in elementary school, if you went into applied, you were less likely to be successful. And parents definitely weren't being given this information. In fact, in a way, they were being given the opposite information. And we used to say this to people, too. Don't set up your child to fail. You know, maybe they should mm -hmm. be in applied. It'll give them more of a chance. But in fact, it turns out it gives them less of a chance. And that, you know, so the, the evidence wasn't being given to parents about what really happens uh, what really was more likely to be, you know, what would happen to them after they graduated. Um, and, you know, yeah, that information wasn't available. So people were making these choices, um, you know, a little bit blind. And in a way, even more worryingly, um, often these choices were being suggested to students uh, by teachers. And many students felt that, um, you know, a teacher looks at me, and this is not all teachers, so I don't want to, you know, blame them all, but that, you know, students and parents definitely felt that, you know, uh, they may be seen as a newcomer or even just because of their race, uh, that it was being suggested they go into applied. And that, that you know, was also incredibly worrying. Sure, I mean that's that's the, the personification of stereotyping, isn't it? To suggest yep. that well, you know, you your parents don't speak English very well. Uh, you're you're relatively new to this country. Why don't you just go down the middle of the road here? But you're you know, first of all, it's 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 wrong to to make that sort of determination. But second of all, think of how many opportunities were lost by by those people that went through the system and then found out that they hit a brick wall. No, and that's exactly. I mean, that's been the kind of you know the terrible thing in this is is closing doors for kids when they're basically 13 years old, making a decision for a child or a child making a decision, going to their parents, going, I want to do this because that's what my friends are doing. But that, that you know, really knowing that those doors slammed sh shut then, it was very, the evidence is, it was very, very hard to get out of <clears throat> applied once you were in it. And, and yeah, and we we definitely and the evidence, the research, even the OECD, you know, the international organization that does all the international testing, they said, you know, this is a this is wrong. Children are less likely to be successful. And part of what was happening in Ontario was boards were just deciding on their own. In Hamilton, boards are working on this. It's happening other places where they went. We're going to de-stream. Now, the important thing in this is that in those boards and the schools where they went, where all kids are going to go into academic, they made sure there were lots of extra supports there. So this is the first step: is announcing this. The next step is what supports are going to be put in place to make sure that. Um, it's not just sink or swim that we we know that some of these kids may be more likely to struggle in high school. Are there going to be, you know, extra teachers, extra support staff for them to make sure uh, that they can be successful? 
Was there a stigma attached to this when when that determination was made? And you know, when I saw this story, Annie, it, it kind of brought back some, well, not too pleasant memories actually. I, I mean, I, way back when I was going to elementary school, I mean, they didn't have the streaming, but uh, high school back then there was a five-year course and a four-year course, and, and I think there's actually a two-year course, which I guess would be, you know, in the in the realm of the remedial stuff. And the teacher in grade eight would recommend which course, you know, you should go into, which stream, I guess, uh-huh. to use Kermit. And, and I got to tell you, the, the pressure was on just about everybody. You know, I, I hope he recommends me to a five year because I mean, if he, if he says the four year or God forbid the two year course, uh, that means I'm dumb. And, you know, what's going to happen to me then? What are my parents going to think of me? Uh, was the same sort of thing going on when, when the determination was made about applied or, or academic? A, a little bit. I mean, it is important that, you know, that, and this goes back to did everybody have enough information, um, kids and their parents could make the ultimate decision. Parents had to sign off on it. But definitely it was being suggested for students. It's, you know, I suggest you go into applied. And there was, uh, lots of students have talked about the feeling that, oh, you know, this teacher doesn't think I can make it, or obviously, you know, it's like, it was a little bit like, they're giving up on me already a little bit like that. And I really, again, won't don't want to, you know, damn all everybody in the, in the system with this, but that there, there, there definitely was that worry. There was also the worry. I mean, we looked at schools across the province and kind of mapped out the schools that had a really high proportion of kids uh, in applied and it mapped exactly along the poverty lines so that you you end up with a sense that well all all the kids like me go into applied all the kids in my neighborhood or all the kids who look like me go into applied and that is a it is part of what systemic racism is in the system um and it's a and it's a huge problem in the system that you know we still have a system that where your your race your socioeconomic status um is still the number one predictor of whether or not you're going to be successful. So there's lots of work to be done, and this is this is a great first step. Now they're still tr- streaming in grade ten, so the next step is to get rid of it altogether. But the, you know this one was doable. It, it you know appears they're actually going to do it. But again, there have to be the other supports there, and we still have to keep looking at. Um, at the systemic racism. There are people who say, you know what, kids actually start to be streamed, but not overtly, in grade two. You know, people are making assumptions about where they're going to end up. And the other interesting thing they announced today is that a ban on suspending kids in elementary mm-hmm. school, where, again, those were more kids were more likely to be black based on the evidence. And the evidence is that being suspended in elementary school is a really big indicator of whether or not you're going to be successful through all of your schooling and go on to apply to post-secondary. So dealing with that, too, is also very important. But again, you can't just you can't just go, we're banning this or we're ending this. You have to go, we're banning, we're ending, and these are all the other things we're going to put in place to make sure that the system is successful and it can support these kids to be successful. And for those listeners who may be a little skeptical about some of the, 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 the racial implications that you're talking about, the statistics don't lie here. Uh, you mentioned about the suspensions and how there was an inordinately larger, <coughs> excuse me, uh, number of, of, of colored uh, and, and, and blacks and, and, well, people that are not white involved in that. And even even when you get into the streaming situation, almost 50% of the people in Applied are, are black students. Only 20% of them are non-blacks. So mm-hmm. it's, it's almost as if you know the system seemed to be hurting them all in that direction. Uh, and 
and simply, as you say, creating a barrier that they didn't actually see until they got to the end of that road. Yeah, and it's, and I think that that's, you know, so looking at all of the different aspects of the system uh, that that are racist, and they actually are. Um, but that's where, you know, we have an opportunity right now. Everybody's eyes are open. Everybody's working on this. The government has a whole equity uh, secretariat run by this uh, lawyer named Patrick Case, um, who is, I think he's, yeah, who's like a, been an incredible leader in this area. So school boards around the province now are collecting race-based data so that we can actually look at, you know, where do things go off the rails and how does this happen and what else needs to change in the system to make sure, and right now, especially, I mean, with COVID and the schools being closed, how do we make sure that we're supporting all students and all families? And it's not just the the ones who are already going to be successful who are going to be okay with the school schools closed. So there's there's lots of work to do to make sure that we're, paying attention to all these things and right now especially like if it, if schools are going to be open you know every other day or every other week in the fall we have to make sure that all families um are supported because that also is going to you know lead to more division in a way it, it disadvantages the already disadvantaged which streaming did too so we have to you know keep looking at all those things this has been work. yeah <laughs> This has been ongoing for quite some time. Why did it take so long for, for well, not just this government, but uh, past governments? Uh, they, we knew what the problems were. We knew what the pitfalls were, Annie. And uh, there was, I was going to say a lot of talk. There wasn't even that much talk about it. But they knew it was wrong, but there was never um, any major attempt to try to do much about it. Well, well, I, I think what's been interesting, actually, is there have been the major attempts have come from the ground up. So school boards have gone, you know what? We're just going to do something about this. We're not going to wait for some big policy change. We're going to start working on this. And they have been for a number of years now. And what's happened then is the evidence is it works. Teachers say you have to work a lot harder. Uh, you know, it's not easy, but it's po- totally doable. So I think major efforts have been going on at the local level. Change in education is incredibly slow, and it's a big, huge ship to, you know, turn around or whatever the uh, saying is. But it's so it is really slow, and sometimes it's very frustrating. And we have to watch this change, too. I mean, just like the kind of disorganized announcements about back to school, um, it's you can't just announce the change. You have to um, you have to figure out how you're going to implement it. So that's, that is the next big step in this, is how are we going to actually make this happen? Well, this is a, an opportunity. I mean, we've talked about the COVID crisis and the impact that it's had, and, and you know, we could talk for hours about that. But uh, as you say, it's a new beginning. I mean, everything is going to be done differently. We've talked about how many businesses that are, are now working at home may continue to do that. Uh, the bricks and mortar offices, uh, not necessarily going to be a thing of the past, but I mean, we're going to change. We're going to evolve. Is the same sort of thing going to happen with education? Yes, I think I think it is, and hopefully for the better. I mean, that's the worry. But yeah, things. I mean, things are changing because they have to change. We have to make sure that we're thinking about, uh, you know, not just can we keep kids six feet apart, but how this is going to have an impact on education. And we do have to figure out how to have. I think you know, right now, anyway, a combination of online and in-person learning. But we ha- we can't just. We can't do it. It's going to take more money for sure, and that's got to be addressed right now. Um, and it's going to take, you know, really looking at, you know, for right now, 
if kids can't be in school all day, every day, um, we have to think about who's going to be there to support kids. And we cannot keep asking families to do it because it's just not possible. And to us, that is the crisis right now. Yes, there was an economic crisis and we did a lot about that. We have to deal with the kind of human crisis. We have to figure out what municipalities could be doing, how much money they need, um, because there need to be other places for, you know, if you think about the 11 and 12 year olds and 15 year olds, um, you know, there we have community centers, we have libraries, we have child and youth workers. Are there other places that they could be being supported to learn on the days that they can't be in school? And that that is the thing that we definitely have to be thinking about right now. Are, are those discussions already happening? I mean, I, I, I gone, gone are so. the days of the, you know, the classroom with 35 students and the teacher at the front. You know, everybody sit straightforward, you know, no talking, hands on your desk. Uh, it's, a, it's a different environment. I think we're smarter than that now. But, I mean, one person at the front of the classroom, uh, is that's putting way too much pressure on that individual, on that teacher, to try to, to look after each and every one of those students, uh, which, which, you know, begs the question about education assistance and, and other help, I mean, qualified help in those classrooms. Yeah, so that we need to be looking at what, what you know what support staff is there and how you know yeah and how how classrooms should be uh, structured uh, you know there's lots of things to look at should curriculum you know we still divide everything into subjects there's lots of people that go that's such an old-fashioned way of thinking of things there are places where teachers are teaching teams and collaborate is that a better way to do it like there are a lot of things that we need to be looking at right now as we go forward but we also have to understand that we are in the middle of a pandemic so we have to look at them within that context too well, and I know in, in past discussions you've talked to us about some of the innovations that are going on in the UK with their education system. I mean, uh, we, we I, I guess, need to kind of open our eyes and look around and see how other people are doing things, not necessarily to say everybody is better than us, but uh, nothing wrong with taking a good idea from someplace else and try to use it here. No, and I think that, so we're working on a big initiative on the future of public education, and part of the problem is it's so hard to talk to it's hard to share across the country, too. So learning what people are doing in other provinces or other jurisdictions, shining a light on things that are working really well, figuring out what kind of policy could support that kind of work in Ontario, that is what has to be happening now, for sure. Well, and of course, you know, the implications of this, we talked about the benefit to students, also to the teachers themselves. I mean, you know, we've, we've talked about absenteeism among teachers and, and stress because of this. I mean, giving them the tools and giving them the framework, uh, a better framework to work there has got to help everybody involved in this. Yeah, and we have to understand all of us, kids in school, not kids in school, um, this is an investment in our next generation. We have to make sure we're doing it well, but especially, back to the beginning of this conversation, we have to make sure it works for all students, not just some, because we want to make sure that, you know, the, the two million students that are in school in Ontario right now all have a fairly equitable chance for success. And right now, that's not the case. So doing things like getting rid of streaming, looking at suspensions, making sure support staff are there, trying to figure out how to make partial online learning work. These are all the things that have to be figured out uh, quickly. <laughs> as we exactly. Andy Kidder from uh, People for Education. As always, Andy, thanks so much. A pleasure having you on the show again today. Okay. Thank you very Take much. Take care. Bye -bye. Talk again soon. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Prime Minister is being investigated by the Ethics Commissioner once again. Uh, and this is all, of course, with the, the WE charity deal that he announced last week that uh, they received immediate pushback, and justifiably so, from an awful lot of people. Uh, it's a, a very frustrating situation, of course, uh, with the, the Prime Minister's announcement that uh, the charity 
party that he chose, and, and I got a concern about the fact that he chose it in the first place, uh, was the only pl the one that could deliver the, the student program that he was talking about. Well, the uh, investigator, uh, Mr. Dion, the Commissioner Dion, is going to investigate this, but the Prime Minister is adamant that, uh, well, he, he did the right thing. Obviously, the way uh, this situation has unfolded has been uh, unfortunate. Uh, we will continue to work hard to make sure that young people get the opportunities to serve their country, but it will uh, no longer be with the organization we. Uh, and he maintains that this was the only, only organization in this country that could probably deliver the program efficiently. Uh, we can take exception to that, if you will. I can uh, talk about that. But uh, there's, there's a, a much broader problem here. I want to bring Duff Conagher into the conversation. Duff, of course, is the co-founder of Democracy Watch, also an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. Uh, Duff, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for this today. My pleasure. Well, the Prime Minister is uh, sticking to his guns. Uh, I, I, I don't know if there's anybody else even in his cabinet, let alone in the country right now, that he thinks he did the right thing. This this thing smelled right from the get-go, didn't it? Yes, very much so. And, uh, again, just the Prime Minister not thinking about how something would look. And we have evidence that, uh, according to the co-founder of We Charity, Mark Kielberger, he told a bunch of people in a video conference call back in April that the PMO called. We and invited them to uh, help with this program. And if that's true, then the Prime Minister violated the ethics law because that would be uh, his staff or himself from the PMO uh, furthering the interests of one of his wife's favorite charities, a charity that she has formal associations with. So... Yes, the commissioner is now investigating. The Auditor General hopefully will as well, even though they essentially cancelled the contract on Friday because it was still a very bad spending decision. And by the way, when people are raising some concerns about this, I mean, this is not to denigrate you know, the, the, the organization itself, uh, the We Charity. I'm, I'm sure the Kielbergers uh, and, and their, their friends have done some great work in, in many parts of the country right now. And as you mentioned, it's uh, Sophia Gregoire Trudeau's uh, favorite charity. She's a, an ambassador, so to speak, uh, for the program. The prime minister himself often spoke at the, uh, the annual convention of this, so there's some pretty close ties here. Uh, but to, to suggest that this was the only organization in the country that could do this, so he just decided to give them the contract without any sort of competitor bid process. That flies in the face of just about any political uh, decision, doesn't it? I mean, you know, especially in these days, Duff, when we're crying for transparency uh, from our elected leaders, to do something like this is, is really a, a, a slap in the face to an awful lot of people. Yes, it is, and uh, a real puzzle, because... Um there are lots of organizations could do could do this. In fact, we hasn't ever done something like this and reached out immediately to Volunteer Canada and uh, probably the Canadian Teachers Federation could have done it because we was also reaching out to teachers to recruit youth to participate in the program. I mean, if we could do this, then why would they have to be involving these other organizations, including offering to pay teachers $12,000 to recruit students? And uh, and camps, $25,000 to recruit youth. And uh, a teacher's union had said that would have been a conflict of interest for a teacher to be reaching out to students to uh, recruit them for this, such a program. And think about that teacher-student relationship then. What if the student refuses? Well, then does the teacher hold it against the student because the student's made it more difficult for the teacher to get $12,000 when, when the teacher's marking the student's papers in the fall? I mean, it's just, it was badly designed, uh, and especially because 
we already pay public servants to run two very similar programs, Canada Service Corps, which mm-hmm. encourages youth to volunteer, and the Canada Summer Jobs Program, which offers summer jobs to youth. And we, we're paying dozens, if not hundreds, of public servants to run those two programs, and they should have been, from the get-go, running this new program. There's no reason to contract it out to anybody, any other organization, especially not one of the Prime Minister. Uh, the wife of the Prime Minister, one of her favorite charities. Of course, the summer jobs program, not without controversy either, because of some of the qualifications the government put on uh, the agencies that uh, that might qualify for the for that kind of money. But uh, we'll set that aside for now. That's that's not the, the the headline story now. It's it's what's happening with this. But your point's well taken, though, Duff. There are already existing agencies that, that the government is clearly aware of that might have been interested in doing this. But I mean, if they don't get the opportunity to weigh in on this, uh, you'll never find out. Yes, and Huffington Post Canada asked uh, the Prime Minister's office, did they actually, uh, at the Cabinet meeting to approve sole sourcing this contract to we? Because it is not uh, a, a legal sole, sole source contract unless you can prove that we is the only organization that could do this. And really, there's no evidence of that. Angered a lot of, of other organizations who feel they would have been well placed to bid on it. But if the Prime Minister was at the Cabinet table to approve that, uh, more than $19 million flowing to we, then he was taking part in a decision to further uh, the interests of this charity, one of his wife's favorite charities. And that's a violation of the ethics law. And the Prime Minister's office refused to confirm or deny whether he was at the meeting when Huffington Post called uh, on Friday. And so why wouldn't it? I mean, they would know. It obviously didn't take place that long ago. And the Prime Minister announced the program on Monday. So he's already taking part in the decision by announcing it and promoting it and defending it. And all of those things alone, I think, add up to a violation of the ethics law. And then for the Auditor General, it's to look at for the spending. I mean, really, is this value for money? Is this the most efficient and effective way this could have been offered? When you already have these two federal government programs that have websites set up, have application forms online, and process thousands of applications for volunteer positions and also Canada summer jobs from organizations, which is exactly what this program will do. So there's lots there. And again, the prime minister's radar completely off in terms of the public uh, uh, impression of this. And then his defense as well as in similar situations when he's been caught, he makes up a line and he sticks to it. And the line is just unbelievable. We, Charity, is the only organization in the country that could deliver this. I mean, it's just so implausible. Uh, But he's just stuck to it and stuck to it and stuck to it until they finally canceled the contract on Friday, which was the only smart move they'd made in this whole situation. But it follows a pattern, though, doesn't it, Duff? I mean, since COVID has Very come helpful. along, and we've talked about I mean, the daily briefings, which are coming to an end, thankfully, uh, because they, they became a little tedious after a while. But there were an awful lot of announcements made. Almost, I got the impression sometimes there was the pressure felt by the government to say, well, we have to say something today. We did yesterday, and we have to, we're going to go live again today. Let's come up with a program. Uh, and we'll work out the details later on. So, you know, we'll make the announcement, and, and then, you know, that seems to be the attitude that they took when they, they made this announcement. Uh, but there are already existing 
existing programs. Is there nobody around the cabinet table or in the PMO that could whisper in his ear, have you thought this out before we did this? I mean, you know, as, to, hey, or even, you know, let's face it, let's, let's get politically crass about it. Cover your butt on this, Prime Minister. Uh, don't get involved in the decision. Um, maybe, but it, I, I think it's just the, this arrogant attitude that we've seen. The Prime Minister and the Liberals have been uh, relatively high in the polls recently. He's been very dismissive of Parliament and uh, the accountability that Parliament and daily sessions bring to uh, our government, which is a key part of how our whole parliamentary system operates and our system of government, and uh, has been quite content just to take a few questions from the media and walk away whenever things, anything gets hot in terms of the media pressure. And uh, I think it's just showing that same arrogant attitude, as he, as he did when the previous two times when he has been found guilty by the ethics commissioner of violating the ethics law. Uh, first, in, in terms of uh, um, taking the trip to the Aga Khan's private island at a time when the Aga Khan was lobbying the prime minister for tens of millions of dollars for his foundation and saying, well, he's a friend, I'm allowed to do this, and not thinking at all of the optics. And then secondly, uh, pressuring the Attorney General to let SNC-Lavalin off the hook and stop a prosecution for massive bribery in, in several countries around the world. And uh, again, saying, oh, well, I'm just, you know, acting in the public interest here and, and what I did was fine and never apologizing. Still hasn't apologized for the, either the Aga Khan trip or the SNC-Lavalin intervention trying to stop the, the uh, prosecution of that company by pressuring the attorney general and that kind of arrogance we've seen it in past prime ministers and what they don't seem to realize is oh yeah maybe their rabid supporters of their party will stick with them but those aren't the people that win or lose elections for you it's swing voters if swing voters swing in your direction then you win the election there's 10 to 15 sometimes 20 percent in a big election swing of people who will change their vote. Uh, and if you're not impressing them, then you can lose the next election. So it's a small percentage of voters. It's only up to 20% at most, usually only 10 to 15%. And they pay attention to these issues. They want clean politics because they know you're not going to clean up any problem unless you have a clean government and a clean political system. And so that's why this could be damaging to them, to, to the people who count most in elections, which are the voters who will actually swing and switch their votes. And to your point, I mean, you know, recent public opinion polls have actually been quite favorable to him. Uh, we can debate some of the merits of some of the programs he's announced during COVID-19, but, I mean, they are there, and some people, I guess, are benefiting from that. Whether or not it's the right thing to do, well, you know, we'll, we'll make that determination, I guess, later on. But where's the political antenna here, Duff, to, to understand that, hey, actually, you know what, we are looking pretty good. Uh, does he forget the fact that, uh, let's face it, when when they dropped the writ for that last federal election, uh, just about everybody in the country figured, okay, he's cooked, that's it for him. He, he pulled it out of the fire, but with a minority government. Uh, when you get an upward swing like that, you want to do something to kind of maintain or even increase that momentum, don't you, instead of something like this? Yes, very much so. Uh the Liberals won the lowest percentage of vote since the country was created in order to be able to form government. It's a minority government. The Conservative Party, even with Andrew Scheer, according to all uh, reports, not running a great campaign, they won more votes overall than the Liberals, but not more seats. So the, 
the, the liberals should be walking on eggshells. Um, they're in a minority situation. And instead, you see uh, this kind of thing where I think the radar was completely off. The cynic in me, and you've been watching uh, you know, politics for a long, long time, as I have, is that, look, there's probably influence peddling that goes on a lot more than we even realize in politics. But the savvy politicians that do that, some are, they, they, they create a buffer so, you know, their hands are not on it. I know that sounds, you know, very clandestine, but we know it happens, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, and that sort of thing. Uh, but to do it as overtly as this, uh, it, it's, it's brazen right now, and it, it's inviting this sort of reaction. And, and it, it's, it's no surprise, I guess, that uh, after some, uh, some egg gone from a couple of the opposition MPs that, uh, that uh, the commissioner, Mr. Dion, has decided to get into this. And I, I, I don't want to presuppose necessarily, but given the evidence that we see right in front of our eyes right now, I think we can pretty much assume the, the kind of conclusion Mr. Dion's going to come to in this investigation. We, we don't know for sure whether the Prime Minister took part in the decision or a discussion about the situation. We have the co-founder of WE, Mark Kielberger, saying that he, the Prime Minister's office called. And uh, if they called, then they're calling on his behalf, and that's his intervention. His, his staff all serve him and all serve at his pleasure and be fired at any time for any reason uh, by him. So... That's all the evidence we have, uh, as well as the uh, refusal to answer Huffington Post's question as to whether he was at the uh, actual uh, cabinet meeting where they approved. Well, and from a legal standpoint, Duff, I mean, as a lawyer, I mean, if you're not there, say you weren't there, and, and that, that, that takes that away, but the absence of a, a definitive answer like that creates speculation and, and say, well, why, why won't you? answer that question is it because it you know you it's going to make you culpable in a situation like this yes and a fairly simple question were you at the cabinet meeting or not i mean they take minutes and uh they they know who was at each of these cabinet meetings they're all recorded for history in terms of who was there and a basic description of what was discussed so it's uh it, it is puzzling. Well, we'll and, see how I'm Mr. surprised they were not able to answer that question and clear it up. Now, it raises a suspicion that probably they, he was at the meeting and they just don't want to say. And so uh, we'll see what happens with the Ethics Commissioner investigation. And I hope even though the, the contract was largely canceled, I hope that the uh, Auditor General will actually investigate still because it's a spending decision still, even if the money wasn't fully spent. Exactly. And he should be he should be auditing how that spending decision even happened and wh- whether it violated spending rules to hand out the contract in the first place. Jeff Conager, uh, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Always a, a great pleasure to get your perspective on this, Def. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.